Jodcast, Flexing Our Biceps, with Stuart Harper, Fiona Healy, Indy Leclerc, Mark Perver, Christina Smith and Joe Zunz. The Jodcast, March 2014 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Fiona Healy and joining me in the studio today are Christina Smith and Mark Perver. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. In the show this time, we have Indy interviewing Dr. Manda Banerjee about dusty quasars, Mark interviewing Professor Ian Brown in this month's Jodbite, and Dr. Joe Zunz answering your questions in Ask an Astronomer. But before all of that, one episode later than usual, here's the news with Stuart Harper. In the news this month, we peer deeply into the world of an ancient X-ray mirror. It is believed that at the heart of most, if not all, galaxies, there lies a supermassive black hole. In the present epoch of the universe, most supermassive black holes reside invisibly in the centre of their host galaxy. This, however, was not always the case. Earlier in the universe, galactic cores were far more turbulent than today. Galactic mergers, or extreme star formation, led to large amounts of gas and dust being available to potentially fall into the supermassive black holes. Hot disks and powerful jets would form from the infalling gas, which illuminated the cores of earlier galaxies. These sorts of galaxies are known as active galactic nuclei, and the brightest of these are known as quasars. We are able to see that the lives of supermassive black holes have evolved and changed alongside their host galaxies throughout the age of the universe. This tells us that the properties of a galaxy's supermassive black hole are intrinsically linked to the events of a galaxy's past. Black holes are in some ways relatively simple objects. The mass can tell us about how much material a black hole has accreted, and generally larger black holes will reside inside larger galaxies. However, the angular momentum of a black hole can tell us about how the black hole gained that mass. Was it chaotic? The matter falling in bit by bit sporadically over the millennia? This is the case for most nearby quasars in the present universe. Or was the supermassive black hole fed continuously, surrounded always by an ample supply of gas and dust to feed on? As it is expected to be the case for younger quasars earlier in the universe. Clearly then, understanding the angular momentum of a black hole is vitally important for us to know how the cores of galaxies have changed from being material rich to material poor. One critical question which astronomers studying quasars want to know is, exactly when did this change occur and how fast did it occur? In order to measure the angular momentum of a supermassive black hole, you need to be able to isolate the X-ray spectrum being emitted from the immensely hot gas in the immediate vicinity of the black hole. These are areas comparable in size to our solar system, but in objects that are millions or even billions of light years away. This means that our telescopes need to be able to take extremely high resolution observations to distinguish the disk from the surrounding galaxy. Not only that though, the X-ray signals that the astronomers are looking for are not the powerful ones that are emitted directly from the hot gas around the black hole, but are from the X-rays which are reflected off the hot gas, which are substantially dimmer in intensity. 
This means that with our current generation of X-ray observatories, we can only take accurate measurements of the reflected X-ray spectrums for some nearby quasars. Which is unfortunate, since ideally we need to be able to have many measurements of different quasars at all different ages of the universe, going back as early as possible. If we want to be able to make any definite conclusions as to how the evolutions of galaxies are linked to the supermassive black holes in their core, what is it that is different about reflected X-rays? Though, why do we need to measure those instead of the far brighter directly emitted X-rays? The critical difference is that. The reflected X-rays are encoded with the emission lines of material within the hot gas. However, due to the proximity of the hot disk to the black hole, these emission lines are smeared out by the immense whipping up of space-time caused by the spinning black hole's powerful rotating gravitational field. By measuring the shape of the smeared emission lines, it is possible to use Einstein's equations of relativity to predict the angular momentum of the black hole. So, what can we do then to measure these reflected X-rays in the more distant and earlier quasars? One solution is simply to wait for bigger and better X-ray observatories, which ultimately will be necessary. But in the meantime, there is another way in which we can gain some insight into the nature of these more distant quasars. Thanks once again to Einstein's general relativity. A team of astronomers published this month their analysis of the reflected X-rays from a quasar two billion years younger than any other previously measured. They were able to do this because the quasar in question was being gravitationally lensed by a nearby large galaxy that lay in front of it. The gravitational lens acted to magnify and multiply the intensity of the X-rays coming from the distant quasar, effectively making it as bright as one of the nearer quasars. What the astronomers found was that the quasar seemed to exhibit the characteristics of a supermassive black hole that was continuously feeding on the gas within the core of its host galaxy. This is contrary to the supermassive black holes in the present universe, which feed only sporadically on the occasional misfortunate gas cloud which strays too close. Although this is only a peek into the earlier period in the history of the universe, it does seem to indicate that it was within this time that galaxies began to undergo significant changes, becoming calmer and less violent places. Thanks for that, Stuart. Now here's Mark with the Jod Bite interviewing Professor Ian Brown about a radio telescope called Bingo. For this month's Jod Bite, I'm interviewing Professor Ian Brown, who is now an emeritus professor at the Dodger Bank Centre for Astrophysics. So welcome. I don't think we've interviewed you before somehow, although we probably should have done. No, I've escaped so far. <laughs> so I understand that since technically retiring, you now have uh, rather more time to spend on the, the sorts of projects that you like. So what are you working on at the moment? Well, my main project, actually, is something we call uh, Bingo, which is a, a cosmology project. And the basic idea is we want to build a novel type of uh, radio telescope, special purpose radio telescope, to measure something called baryon acoustic oscillations. So I'm mean, going back to the, the beginning. Uh, there was a big bang. And for the first 400,000 years of the, the universe, while it was expanding, the universe was opaque. It was a, a plasma. And in that plasma, 
sound waves propagated. And at a time about 400 years after the Big Bang, the universe became transparent. The fog cleared and those waves stopped propagating. The maximum wavelength of those waves is determined by essentially the light travel time across the universe at 400,000 years after the Big Bang. So this is as, as the universe is expanding as yes. well? Yes, so the universe is expanding, it's opaque to start with, and then at 400,000 years after the Big Bang, it becomes transparent because the electrons and the neutrons and the protons combine to produce atoms and light is no longer absorbed. There is a wavelength set by the physical conditions when the universe became transparent. And that maximum wavelength is about 150 megaparsecs. So pretty big, much bigger than a galaxy then. Much bigger than a, a galaxy. Uh, but it was the essentially the light travel time across the universe uh, at the time the fog cleared. So we actually see the imprint of those waves in the cosmic microwave background radiation. And that's been studied intensively over the last 20 years, most recently by the Planck satellite. And if you take what we call a power spectrum of the distribution of fluctuations in the microwave background, we see a lovely peak corresponding to about 150 megaparsecs. Since then, the universe has gone on expanding. Matter has contracted under gravity, producing the galaxies and structures that we see today. But there's a memory of that wavelength still in the distribution of, of matter, both luminous and dark matter in, in the universe. And it has that fixed linear scale. And so what we want to do with uh, Bingo is actually to measure that scale in the relatively nearby universe after the galaxies have formed. And this scale gives us what we call a, a standard ruler. Cosmologists like standard rulers or standard candles, something that has a fixed size or a fixed luminosity that they can see at different distances. And it's these baryon acoustic oscillations that we're going to use to study the geometry of the universe and hopefully to tell us something about uh, dark energy. So people have done this previously by actually mapping where galaxies are and it seems extraordinary but you're saying there's literally a, an imprint in the way that galaxies are scattered about the universe. That's right. If you take an individual a galaxy then if you go out 150 megaparsecs away from it you will find that there's an over-density compared with random, about 1% at that kind of linear scale. So it's a, it's a fairly subtle effect, and that's why it's a challenge, and people uh, are only just starting to do this kind of measurement. It's already been established that you can see the signal uh, using optical galaxies. To do it optically, you you need a big telescope, you need to survey a huge number of, of galaxies, millions of galaxies, measure their, their redshifts. This is, in some sense, a brute force way of, uh, of doing it, because once you've measured all their, the distributions, where they are in, in, in angle and in distance, 
you average the signal from all those galaxies together to see this subtle density perturbation. The clever thing about what we want to do is what we call intensity mapping. And we actually exploit the fact that a radio telescope has very poor resolution. So when we point a radio telescope at the sky, we don't just see the emission from one galaxy, but we see the integrated emission from hundreds, maybe thousands of galaxies, depending on how far away those galaxies are from us. And the nice thing about the radio is that neutral hydrogen gas emits a spectral line of a rest wavelength of 21 centimeters. And so we can use the emission from this neutral hydrogen to probe the three-dimensional distribution of hydrogen gas in the universe and use that as a tracer of matter in general. And that hydrogen still makes up most of the universe that we can actually detect. Yes, hydrogen is the most abundant element in, in the universe. Um, it's not all neutral. In fact, a modest fraction is neutral. And that's what we're, we're, we're studying because that's what emits this 21 centimetre emission line. That's the rest frequency of the line. If we uh, take a radio telescope, take a spectrum of the emission that we see, uh, and we see a, a feature at a certain wavelength longer than 21 centimetres, that gives us the, the redshift and hence a distance. So that would be emission coming from somewhere distant from us and the expansion of the universe while that 21 centimetre radiation has been travelling has stretched it to a longer yeah, wavelength. Sure. So. so, well, what we want to study is, roughly speaking, is where the wavelength, rather than 21 centimetres, has been stretched to about 30 centimetres. So you're looking at a specific area of the universe? Uh, well, an, an area both in direction, but also in, in distance or redshift. And yeah. how will that be done specifically with bingo? Because it's a, an unusual sort of design, isn't it, for a telescope? It's, a, it's an unusual design. Um, so it's a, it's a special purpose telescope designed with this idea specifically in, in mind. And we want to make it cheap and simple. So we don't want it to have any moving parts. Because we're working at a relatively long wavelength, uh, we can actually uh, manage with room temperature amplifiers rather than cryogenically cool ones. And the design we've, we've come up with is a, a two-mirrored design with a, a very long effective focal length. And the reason we want a very long effective focal length, that gives our telescope a relatively wide field of view. So most radio telescopes have a modest field of view and you can put typically one, maybe several receivers, essentially pixels on the sky. We want to have 50 or 60 pixels on the sky so simultaneously we can observe a large area. And since the telescope has no, no moving parts, we just sit there and let the Earth scan the telescope across the sky. So we want to map a strip of sky about 10 degrees wide. And when you map that and you get the hydrogen emission, how will you measure the baryon acoustic oscillations in that? And what might it tell you that other methods perhaps aren't sensitive to? To see the hydrogen emission, we have to work hard to start with. And that's one of the reasons why 
this kind of experiment hasn't been done before because the hydrogen emission is not the only source of emission in the sky. We have emission from our own galaxy. We have emission from extragalactic radio sources. And also, if we're unlucky, we'll have uh, man-made interference. So in order to get at the signal in the first place, we have to try and separate out the hydrogen signal from these other foreground, background sources of radiation. And the way we do that essentially is to use the fact that the foreground emission, the confusing emission, has a very smooth spectrum, doesn't have any features in it. But the hydrogen emission, because it's a line emission, has frequency structure. So let's assume that we can actually get rid of all these nasty, confusing emissions, and we've got a map of the, the hydrogen distribution. Then what we do is to look for characteristic frequencies or scales within our, our map. And the way we analyze such a, uh, a map is to essentially do a Fourier transform to obtain a, a power spectrum. It measures the power in various wavelengths. Those are, those are spatial Spatial wavelengths, wavelengths yes. And because we have redshift information, uh, then actually it's a three-dimensional distribution that we have. So uh, we essentially do a three-dimensional power spectrum. And from that, then, you're saying it's about cosmology and yeah. it's partly about dark energy. Yeah. So how do you investigate dark energy through this? Well, when we've got our hydrogen power spectrum, what we expect to see is a characteristic big peak corresponding to a linear scale of 150 megaparsecs. What we do is measure what the angular size of that peak is, or what angular, angular size that corresponds to. And what we can do is to see what angular scale that corresponds to at a whole series of redshifts. Bingo itself will cover a smallish range, but significant range of redshifts. Optical surveys cover different ranges of redshift, uh, somewhat higher, and the cosmic microwave background studies measure that scale at a redshift of a thousand. So we're looking at the angular scale corresponding to 150 megaparsecs at various different epochs of the universe. If you like, we can produce a Hubble diagram of the angular scale as a function of redshift. And how the angular scale varies with redshift depends on our cosmological model. And one of the key elements in cosmological models at the moment, cosmological models in, in general, is the amount of dark energy present that affects the way the geometry of the universe changes with, with redshift. And that's really what we're, we're trying to focus on. So you're sort of looking at whether dark energy is now re really driving the expansion of the universe yeah. at sort well, of recent times? We've, we're pretty confident dark energy is driving the acceleration of the expansion of the universe at the present epoch. What we don't know is whether this dark energy... We don't know anything about this dark energy, really. Uh, we have evidence that it exists. We don't know whether uh, its effect has remained constant with epoch or it changes with epoch. And that's one of the things that we hope to, to study, to see whether it's constant 
if it's constant, then it's um, the equivalent of what Einstein invented in his general theory of relativity over a hundred years ago, his so-called cosmological constant. So it could be that it's just constant of the universe and we have to try and understand why that constant has the value it, it has. Or it could be that it is something that isn't constant, varies with the epoch of the universe, and there must be some physics behind that. So it's exciting either way. We're ignorant at the moment. We want a bit more knowledge. Fantastic. Well, maybe as a last thing, I was just thinking that this telescope, as you said, is relatively inexpensive. It's slightly against perhaps the current trend in the sense that it's a specific job that it's doing and it's mm. not supposed to be an all-purpose instrument. Is this something that could have been built before or is it the case that before anybody knew about dark energy it wouldn't have been in anyone's mind to build a telescope like this? I think it's as a, is a telescope of its, its time. Uh, over the last 10 years the realisation that dark energy is is real and something to be studied uh, has emerged. The other thing that uh, makes it a tele telescope of its time is that actually to extract the signal that we're after, uh, we'll need uh, quite sophisticated data processing. And in fact, many of the techniques uh, that we will use have actually uh, been developed in the last few years by people studying the cosmic microwave background because there also they need to remove foreground emission from, from the galaxy. Apart from computing power and analysis techniques, in terms of uh, technology, the telescope could have been built 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, the only clever thing we say about the telescope is the system, not the individual parts. Wonderful. Well, I think we can wrap it up there. Actually, just the very last question. What does bingo actually stand for? I never asked you. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I have to try and uh, remember. So the B comes from B for baryon acoustic oscillations. So it, bingo stands for baryon acoustic oscillations from integrated neutral gas observations. Okay. Well, a, a good convoluted acronym is always a, is always a bonus. <laughs> yes. So it's stuck for some reason. <laughs> okay, well. Thank you very much for telling us about that. Thank you. Thanks for that, Mark. Now we have Indy speaking to Dr. Manda Banerjee about dusty quasars. I'm with Dr. Manda Banerjee from UCL. Hi, Manda. Hi. You've been visiting JVC to talk about your area of research, which is dusty quasars. And these things are quite new and quite interesting and quite exotic. So could you tell us a bit more about what they are? Sure. So my research is on dusty quasars, and quasars are very highly accreting, very luminous, supermassive black holes. And supermassive black holes, we believe, live at the centres of all galaxies. But in most galaxies, they're dormant. So for example, in our own Milky Way, the supermassive black hole in our own Milky Way is called Sagittarius A star, and it's a dormant black hole, so it's not feeding, it's not eating very much matter. Okay. But in the distant universe, we find that many of these supermassive black holes are rapidly growing. They're eating lots of gas, stars, and growing very rapidly. And during this growing phase, they appear as very luminous objects, some of the brightest objects in the sky. Okay. And so, so these are called quasars. And in particular, I'm interested in studying very dusty quasars, because this is, we believe, the 
emerging phase of a supermassive black hole as it's beginning to grow because the growth phase is usually induced by lots of star formation in the galaxy so when you have lots of star formation the stars provide fuel for the black hole to feed on that's how the black holes grow and the star formation also produces lots of dust and so when we're catching these quasars these dusty quasars it's when they're just emerging so it's just as they're being born so to speak when you say in the distant galaxy i mean this basically means that we're looking backwards in time so we're looking at what younger galaxies i'm assuming exactly yeah so that's the really interesting thing because as you go to the distant universe because of the time that light takes to travel you're looking at things at earlier times and so you're actually catching this growing phase of supermassive black holes in the very early universe and trying to understand how all supermassive black holes form including the one in our in our own milky way so you're catching these things just as they're beginning to form in the very early universe not long after the big bang Okay, and so what's special about the dusty quasars? Because I think some of our listeners will be familiar with the concept of quasars already and wondering, well, what's the big deal? I mean, we've already seen loads of these. Yeah, so the reason for looking for the dusty quasars is, as I said, because we think that these dusty quasars are the emerging phase of the black holes. So they're just as these black holes are beginning to appear as normal quasars. And so we believe that by studying these, we're catching these objects as they're growing. And so we can try to understand the feeding process we can try to understand the growing process whereas normal quasars when you look at them they've already grown very very luminous so they're kind of the adult quasars if you like okay. and we're catching the adolescent quasars right. as they're as they're growing up and there's also another special thing is that you can't see them with visible light or say radio can you yeah so the thing about dust is dust usually absorbs the optical light, the visible light. And so if you're going to find things with lots of dust, you normally need to go to infrared wavelengths, which is less sensitive to the dust. So to find these emerging, growing black holes, we've had to use infrared surveys of the sky, whereas typically quasars have been identified in optical surveys. They haven't found this kind of emerging phase. Could you tell us a bit about which surveys you've been looking at and which telescopes these things use? So my research uses two telescopes in particular. So the UK Infrared Telescope, which is in Hawaii, which has imaged a large chunk of the northern hemisphere of the sky. And then in the southern hemisphere is a telescope called VISTA, which is the Visible and Infrared Survey Telescope for Astronomy. And it's located in Chile, and that's doing the southern hemisphere of the sky. So together, those two telescopes give us pretty much the entire sky. And... So have these surveys found many of these quasars or are they sort of a more rare object? These are very rare objects. They're very, very rare phenomena. So we estimate there's maybe about a 500, a maximum of 1,000 over the entire sky if you're looking for the brightest ones. And the reason why we haven't been able to do this before is because infrared surveys are very hard to do because everything emits thermal emission in the infrared. And so to actually be sensitive to light from the very distant universe, you need to cool the detectors to very low temperatures. And that technology is a very recent technology that's allowed us really for the first time to conduct these very sensitive all-sky infrared surveys. So that's the reason why we haven't found these things before. And so is there room for improvement on these detective technologies? Are you going to be able to, going forwards, detect even more of the quasars? And what are your sort of ultimate science goals when you've got a decent-sized population of dusty quasars? This is really great time for infrared survey astronomy. As I said, these surveys are happening now and able to detect light from the very distant universe. So these dusty quasars that I've been studying are about 10, 11 billion years old. 
So that's how long the light has taken to travel to us. So this is very early universe, but actually with the next generation of infrared surveys, we can push even further back, even closer to the Big Bang and really find some of the first supermassive black holes to have formed in our universe. And so um, there's a new space satellite called the Euclid mission, which will launch in 2019, 2020. And that's, again, it's going to be the next leap up in terms of technology. And it's really going to allow us to push these studies to the very, very early universe and identify some of the first supermassive black holes to have formed in our universe and try and characterize the physical processes in them and how they're different from the ones that we're studying at the moment and also from things like Sagittarius A star in our own Milky Way. So far, what, what insights has the study of these dusty quasars given on the formation and evolution process of supermassive black holes or just galaxies? So I think by identifying this population, we've shown that actually it's likely that all quasars go through this phase. So it's likely that our own supermassive black hole may have gone through this phase where it's initially obscured by dust as it's feeding, as it's growing. What we're doing now is really trying to understand how the supermassive black hole is acting on the surrounding gas, whether that gas is infalling or whether the supermassive black hole is able to actually push out some of the gas because it's such a high luminosity, such a powerful object, whether it's actually able to drive outflows, expel gas from galaxies, which is what simulations tell us should be happening in the distant mm -hmm. universe. But so far, it's been very difficult to observe that. So really, what we're trying to do is see if we can observe some of the processes that are predicted by simulations of galaxy formation. This is another possibly irrelevant question, but does this have anything to do with the shape of the galaxies themselves? Does it influence the sort of viral or elliptical galaxy formation, for example? The things that we're studying are very, very bright quasars. They're some of the most luminous quasars. And we think these things mostly live in elliptical galaxies because elliptical galaxies are the most massive galaxies. And we think that we're catching these things as that elliptical galaxy is forming. Okay. So it's not quite an elliptical galaxy yet. And we think that most elliptical galaxies have maybe formed through mergers of spiral of disk galaxies. Mm -hmm. So we might be catching these things just as those two spiral galaxies have collided, feeding accretion onto the black hole, and eventually that system is going to turn into a massive elliptical galaxy. So would the supermassive black hole at the centre of a spiral galaxy be theoretically visible, but just too faint for you to see at the moment? Yeah, exactly. So current technology restricts us to just the brightest objects, which pushes us to the most massive galaxies, okay. which, which are elliptical galaxies. So there's a kind of two-way expansion you could go. You could either go further, further backwards in time and further further away, basically, and still keep looking for the brighter ones, or you could sort of expand your search at a given distance or redshift and figure out what the fainter ones are. Exactly, like. yeah. So I think a lot of effort has gone in in recent years to do the second, to actually find fainter uh, accreting black holes in more normal, less extreme systems. But as I said, with those objects, they're, they're typically so faint that it doesn't allow you to say much about the physics of what's going on in them unless you just look at ones in the very, very nearby universe. So that's what would have given rise to our own Milky Way, for example. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, thanks for talking to us today, Amanda. Thank you. Thanks for that, Indy. And now we come to the part of the show where we fit in things that wouldn't go anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. Okay, well, I'll start. Uh, and I'm going to talk about Titan, Saturn's largest moon, and also one of the largest moons in the solar system. In fact, a bit bigger than the planet Mercury. Although, interestingly, it's not as heavy, and that's because it's largely made out of things like water ice. But also, it has these lakes, 
consisting of hydrocarbons like methane and ethane. And they're liquid because Titan is about minus 180 degrees Celsius. And so what this odd end is about is an announcement at a lunar and planetary science conference that a team of scientists think that they found waves in one of the lakes on Titan. And if so, then they're actually the first waves anyone's seen away from the Earth. So Titan's interesting for a few reasons. It has quite a thick atmosphere, and apparently it's the only moon in the solar system that does. It's mostly nitrogen, and it's got these lakes. And the Cassini spacecraft has been sending back lots of pictures and data from Saturn and some of its moons. And it's this data that has shown what they call specular reflection, so sunlight being reflected off the lakes in the northern hemisphere of Titan. And what this team found for the first time was that some of these pixels in the image, four pixels to be exact, were a bit brighter than expected. And this sounds like not very much, but they did look at it in several colour filters to make sure it was really happening. And then they ran it through some mathematical models and they said, these extra reflections are consistent with waves, which so far haven't been observed. So it's like these lakes are completely glassy. They could be quite viscous, but now there are some waves, probably. But apparently it could also be a mud flat. No idea what that mud would be made out of. So what Cassini has basically picked up here is like little white horses, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's... Yeah. A, I think that's a... <laughs> Very small white horses. Um, how, how big... Were those waves, did you say? Those waves I hadn't mentioned yet because this is uh, just building to the climax of the uh, Arden End. Two centimetres high. Two centimetres high, wow. So... <laughs> That's ridiculously small. <laughs> like, how... Uh, uh, big normal carrier. <laughs> I guess they can detect it because it's not just like one wave, it's a whole little probably ripple of waves. So I guess it's about partly about the angle they're reflecting out as well oh, you're so right that something in orbit is it's pretty amazing that you yeah, can actually see yeah. that so it's seeing like a series of these small waves it's not just like a single wave actually that is a really good question i don't know there's a really nice picture just showing a little bright spot with a bit of flaring but i would sort of assume that maybe you wouldn't be able to see it from a single wave and also waves don't normally come singly the loneliest little called... wave on titan <laughs> yes there's these things called solitons but i don't think it's necessarily one of those so i assume I assume it will be a little um, ripply wavefront. And it's also interesting because they're expecting the waves to pick up as well. And that's because Titan has seasonal weather. And that depends on Saturn's position around the sun. And Saturn has a period of 30 years to do an orbit. And so each season, if you had four of them, would be about seven and a half years long. I don't know if there are four seasons, but apparently Titan is just coming towards it's um, summer solstice in 2017. And this, they think, is going to result in a rainy season where, much like water on Earth, I suppose, these liquid hydrocarbons are transported towards the lake region and they're expecting the winds to pick up and they're hoping for bigger waves. Okay, so it is wind that's causing these little waves then, is it? I think so. That's what they refer to as, as the main source of the waves, yeah. Okay. All right, well, my odd and end is slightly related to yours, actually, Mark, and also related to something that we were talking about in the March Jodcast. So we were discussing 
uh, exoplanets. And I was complaining that, you know, all these exoplanets are being discovered and I really want to know what they look like uh, and what, what's on them and what would be there uh, and things like that. And as it happens, um, a little bit of research today led me to find that there's a study being done by two fellows in the Pierre-Simon Laplace Institute in Paris, uh, which is trying to model just that. So Forger and Leconte are two scientists uh, in the Laplace Institute who are putting together a theoretical model that tries to take into account all the different parameters that could affect a terrestrial planet's climate and atmosphere. They're putting together a model that takes all those into account and tries to come up with how habitable that planet would be. So they say in their paper, which is available on Archive, that there are three main factors that affect the habitability of a planet. So it depends on the atmosphere composition. It depends on the variability of the parent star and what type it is and how far away it is. And it also depends on how the planet rotates around its parent star. So, for example, the Earth rotates around its own axis and also rotates around the sun. But the moon is tidally locked to the Earth, so it just shows the same face to us all the time. So, for example, if a planet was tidally locked to its parent star, one side of it would be boiling hot and the other side of it would be dark and freezing cold. So, uh, I, I don't know, I wouldn't go for it. I wouldn't want to live there. Um, maybe there are some alien species that that, that, that does work for. <laughs> so, so yeah, there's a few other things that come into play, like, for example, concerning the atmospheric composition. A bigger planet um, has a greater gravitational pull, so it can hold on to lighter elements like hydrogen and helium, um, whereas the Earth, for example, can't. So, so the mass of the planet uh, and the size of the planet affects what's going to make up the atmosphere. Uh, and they can apply this model then to, you know, newly discovered exoplanets to try and see whether or not they could be habitable. So, for example, scientists got very excited there recently, um, relatively recently, about Gliese 581c. So that's a planet orbiting Gliese 581. And people thought for a while there that that was going to be habitable. But these lads in France ran it through their model and said, no, it's probably not because Gliese 581c is much too close to Gliese 581. So it wouldn't really be able to support life. However, though, they were more optimistic about Gliese 581d, um, which is a bit further away. And it's got a, a very thick atmosphere and a temperature warm enough for liquid water. So that's a very good sign for the planet being habitable if it's got liquid water. Um, so yeah, you can read their paper on Archive. It's called Possible Climates on Terrestrial Exoplanets. Um, and it's a very long read with lots of chemical equations. <laughs> <laughs> it must have a lot to do with the atmosphere of the thought. Because I guess the simple model that got people excited about Gliese 581c was saying, well, this is the temperature probably neglecting an atmosphere, I guess. But mm. the atmosphere can make a big difference. But I also would have thought it would be one of the hardest things to predict. Because although you might know roughly what, things could stay on the planet you don't know sort of what elements were actually available to make it yeah um i would agree with you there i mean i think like i said they they can tell um based on the mass of the planet um what it can hold down on its surface um i would refer you to the very long chemical equations uh, <laughs> okay, okay. in their paper um which probably contain more information about that um than i do <laughs> there's also as of last year, been a, a, some work done on directly detecting absorption lines from exoplanets' atmospheres. Um, so there was a group in Leiden, I think, who directly detected water, hmm. um, water vapor in an exoplanet's atmosphere. Yeah. Um, using the Doppler Doppler shifts of the water lines as the planet kind of went around its sun. I don't know how many 
the elements or molecules that's been done for. But yeah, so that's it's right. To happen. Um, uh, yeah, and I think they can do that easily enough for the larger planets, the big gas giants. Um, what it's harder for is the ones that are more likely to be habitable. So the small, little, rocky ones. Um, it's much harder, obviously, to observe those because they're just so much smaller. Hopefully, the James Webb Space Telescope might help to sort this out in a few years. Time. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Um, so my odd slash end is a lot close to home and it's concerning the astronaut Timothy Peak. And for those of you who don't know, Timothy Peak is the ESA British astronaut who was selected in 2009 to become an astronaut. And since then has been doing a lot of interesting things, including joining a mission to live underground for a week, exploring caves and spending 12 days in what's known as the Aquarius Habitat, which is in Florida for NASA's Extreme Environment Mission Operations. And in 2012, he's completed his training and certification for spacewalks and is now currently training for his six month mission to the International Space Station. And something that's pretty exciting is he is going to be the first British astronaut to be on the International Space Station. And his six-month mission to the space station needs a name. And ESA have opened up a competition for members of the public to submit their suggestions. It needs to be short and snappy and not copyrighted in any way. And also uh, easy to say. And if you win... The winner will get a mission patch signed by Tim himself, and that mission patch will have the mission name worked into it. So, yeah, you have the chance to make an impact on ESA missions, which is quite exciting, in my opinion. Um, so, as an example, there was an Italian astronaut's mission called Marco Polo a few years back. So, relatively easy to say, relatively short. And you can use it as a call sign. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Jodcast listeners, feel free to send us in your ideas. Um, we promise we won't steal them. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we're, we're all going to submit Jodcast mission as the name, I think. So. Yeah, I think that would definitely win. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, they did actually also say that it was very important they would be judged on merit alone, not just on when it's submitted or anything like that. So they're open until early April get your mission suggestions in and now on a mission to answer your questions here's dr Josens in ask an astronomer our first question comes from patrick busk who asks in your january extra ask an astronomer one question concerned the big bang and black holes i'm not sure i understood the question but i have had a possibly similar question for a while in the initial period after the big bang wasn't the mass density in all space so high that the gravitational force should have caused everything to collapse into a black hole i.e. if all matter or energy, except I guess vacuum energy that is present today, was also present when space was much, much smaller right after the Big Bang, how is it that any was able to escape what must have been enormous mutual gravitational attraction to form the separate galaxies that make up the universe today? So this is a very good question, and it's an area of active research in at least part of it. Um, so the key, question, the key point is that... Um, Although the early universe was extremely dense and very you know, high amounts of matter were around in the same area, the curvature wasn't very high. Um, so that's because although it, it, was, it, was, it was dense, it was also homogeneous. So it was the same everywhere and completely smooth. Uh, so that means there's not enough mass in a single location to counteract the mass in all the other locations, you know, pulling it apart. Uh, the, um, so that's the standard picture, the background picture, which is the kind of average behaviour of the universe. What is possible is that there are fluctuations in the early universe, which can trigger what we call primordial black holes, which means very early period black holes. Um, if there's a fluctuation that is a, a small amount area in space with much more mass or a little more matter density, 
uh, than the surrounding areas, that could be the kind of thing that at very early times would have enough mass density to form a black hole. Um, that's a candidate for uh, a bunch of things. For example, dark matter has been suggested that it could be a uh, primordial black hole or a collection of primordial black holes, just because it's a uh, point-like, like dark matter has to be, and extremely massive. That's currently disfavoured by most of our um, theory and data. We don't expect them to be enough primordial black holes based on the numbers we do know to explain dark matter, but they're certainly plausible to exist, but not common. Great, okay. Moving on to our next question from Colin Stenning, who asks... Is it possible that there is a connection between dark energy and some as-yet-undiscovered properties of the Higgs field that might point the way towards some sorts of grand unified theory in the future? That's a very good question again. The answer is they're probably not connected, and that's because the energy scales they happen at are very, very different. Um, the universe appears to have been through two periods of dark energy-like expansion. The, the main one that we've learnt about since 1998 is the dark energy period, the late-time acceleration since about redshift 1 or about 8 billion years ago the universe has been accelerating. Um, but what we've just found out, fantastic proof for from the BICEP experiment in uh, this month, is that we have pretty good evidence now for an earlier period of, of acceleration, which we call inflation. So the primordial part of the universe um, is believed to have accelerated very, very rapidly um, during a, a very, very short period. Um, I should add, it's, it's worth, people have argued about whether um, describing that as a rapid expansion is really the right way to understand it. So if you're interested, do Google that question. But the point is the Higgs has been put forward as one candidate for the first period of inflation, the early inflation. You know, that's a reasonable candidate for those things. And some of the early theories of inflation use the Higgs as what they call their inflaton, that is the particle that drives inflation. There are theories, um, sort of speculative ones, that connect the two, that connect the dark energy period and the inflation period, and sort of uh, try and make them have make the single uh, mass particle the cause of both those two effects. But they require sort of extra things that we don't really have evidence for. They require extra particles to be in existence in order to um, connect those two periods and make a mechanism that can explain both of them at once. Um, so the answer is we there could be a connection, but we don't think so. Great. Finally, Leonard Pendlebury asks. The Andromeda galaxy, which is bigger than the Milky Way, is heading our way. How long will Andromeda take to reach us, and what will happen to the black hole at the centre of our galaxy? It will take about 4 billion years, uh, give or take. Uh, we don't have precise numbers, obviously these are very uncertain measurements, but in about 4 billion years the Andromeda galaxy will collide into our galaxy. Um, now, collisions between galaxies are really interesting things, um, partly because galaxies are so empty and the stars so small that when two galaxies collide, none of the stars that make them up actually hit each other. They just pass right through each other uh, like a sort of web of particles because um, they're so fine compared to the big spaces between them. So these two galaxies will smash into each other, but no actual stars will be affected. Um, what does happen is the gas, the interstellar medium between the stars, um, that does collide, that smashes into each other, and that can trigger all kinds of fun effects like starbursts. So um, if the gas gets collides and gets heated up enough, you can get a burst of star formation occurring and we think we see that in a distant universe we see other galaxies colliding the black hole question is especially interesting it's an area of active research um, we think that eventually uh, the black holes will collide and coalesce we think we've seen that behavior um, or the, the signature of that behavior in the distant universe we don't know the time period over that which which that will happen um, but we do know what happens when two black holes collide so one of the reasons you've heard of stephen hawking uh, is because he researched the question of what happens when black holes hit each other and we believe that they should coalesce into a larger black hole which uh, should have more surface area than the two original ones that was, that was a theorem that stephen hawking put forward 
Um, we also know that there's some kind of relation between the history of a galaxy and the history of its black hole. We know there's a very tight correlation between the mass of a black hole in the centre of a galaxy and the mass of the galaxy, or the, um, the, uh, the, the, the mass of the central region of the galaxy at least. And we don't really understand why that is. There's some kind of co-evolution between the two, possibly, or interaction between those two things. So there's a very difficult question that we don't really understand the answer to about how those two things are related and how galaxy collisions um, feed into black hole collisions. It's a very active area of research. Hopefully we'll get some answers at some point in the future. Thanks a lot for answering our questions, Joe. Thanks a lot. Thanks for that, Indian Joe. And now it's time for some feedback. So unfortunately, this month we don't have any post. Uh, please send us some post. We love post. But we do have um, some emails and some Twitters. On the emails, there were a couple of corrections for us. Uh, Mark C spotted in the last Ask an Astronomer that there were one or two little fluffs that should have been edited out. So we've gone back and changed the audio for those. Thank you for pointing that one out. And also Steve K, who said that there was a mistake in the show notes, uh, which actually was my fault. I got a number wrong there. Ian Morrison, who does the Night Sky on his own Night Sky page, of course, got that right, uh, as he always does. So thank you for that, Steve. And we also had some really nice feedback. Rob Peck, who said, Many thanks for your ex excellent podcasts. Keep jodding on. Peter Carr, who said, Hi, I love the Jodcast. Keep up the good work. And Brian Russell, who said he had a great family day out at Jodrell Bank. So I'm really happy to hear that. And he also said very much enjoy the podcast. So thank you for all of those. And on Twitter, Bill Keck2 has been in touch. He says that a delayed train to work means extra time for the Jodcast. And every planetary nebula has a silver lining. <laughs> oh, good one, Bill Keck2. <laughs> um, okay, so if you want to get in touch with us, you can visit our website at www.jodcast.net. Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. Uh, the address is on the website. So now all that's left to say is thanks to Dr. Amanda Banerjee and Professor Ian Brown for the interviews. The editors were Indy Leclerc, George Bendo, Stuart Harper and Mark Pervert and the producer was Indy Leclerc. Until next time, jot on! Jot on.